0: Thank you very much for that, Jane, and thanks again to um, AstroLab Wines, who are our lovely wine sponsor this evening, and I'm sure you're all enjoying a glass. Um, welcome to the session of the Marlborough Book Festival. I think it's going to be a fantastic one. Um, we, oh, I, I do have a couple of points of, of housekeeping. There will be time for questions at the end, and um, there will be book signings afterwards for about half an hour and please if you haven't already uh turn your cell phones off or onto silent. uh we have two amazing uh writers here we're incredibly lucky to have uh, two people of such a great caliber to talk to us this evening uh tom is a have you found your phone tom
1: I've just been making certain of <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um Tom is a, a ridiculous polymath whose achievements are really far too numerous to list here. He's a former listener journalist, a Dominion Post cartoonist, a playwright and a screenwriter. And he has uh, relentlessly mined his family history for (laughs) the purposes of writing. Uh, He's written plays about both his mother and his father. And his family obviously plays a starring role in his new memoir, Drawn Out, which uh, we have here. And Diana will also be well known, I'm sure, to many of you. Uh, She's been a journalist for many years at The Listener, where she's carved out a particular niche as a world-class TV reviewer. Her first book, Driving to Treblinka, is an incredibly moving uh, account of her quest to find out what really happened to the father that she left behind as a teenager in Canada and who was supposed to join them but uh, never did. So I guess can we start perhaps for those who haven't read the books to give a little bit of, of context, just a little bit about your childhoods and the role of Family in those. Um, Diana, can you d- do? You want to start? You were 13, I think, when you left Canada to come to New Zealand. Can you explain? I guess how that happened. In, mm, in, in yes. in well, it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: My father was a uh, Polish Holocaust survivor who um, survived by drumping, jumping off a train on the way to Treblinka, an extermination camp, where the rest of his family, I think, three survivors. There were three survivors out of a family that I'm told the extended family was over 100 people. So he was one of three. He hid out in the forest and uh, was lucky enough to survive. It was miraculous, really. Every step of his survival, the odds were, you know, very much against living for another five minutes, really. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and so he uh, went to Sweden and then made his way to America, where he fell out with his brother, one of brother who got out before the war uh, as happened not infrequently in these families they Mm. couldn't hold together afterwards for reasons we might talk a a bit about later but um yeah and so he took himself off to Vancouver with help from his brother who continued to support him financially where he met my mother who was on her OE from New Zealand she was about 29 I think at the time and uh had been engaged to an American during the war, but he got appendicitis and got shipped out and she never heard from him again, so <laughs> that was that. And uh, she did say later on that after that, um, she got sick of dating guys whose idea of a good time was to vomit behind the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> so she went to Vancouver, ended up working for my father in his textile importing business, and uh, he arrived around at her... Boarding house with a bouquet of flowers and his impeccably tailored English textiles, and uh, clicked his heels, kissed her hand. So they got married. After who could refuse? After he ensured that she was pregnant first, because he was ten years older and he'd been through what he'd been through, and he wasn't messing around by that stage. So he wanted to be sure he was going to have start a new family. So yeah, and. Um, so I grew up there until I was 13, when things spectacularly began to fall apart. Um, he was increasingly ill, though we didn't, as children, really know what was going on, and even my mother, I don't think, really knew what was going on. So her family, big Catholic family in Auckland, and you know, all, uh, mounted a rescue mission basically and sent tickets. Didn't occur to me to wonder at the time if they'd sent one for my father but they certainly sent one for her and three children, so we took off. He was meant to follow, and uh, that's what we expected to happen for quite some time. But yeah, I mean,
0: when did you come to the realisation, I guess, that, that that wasn't going to happen? Well, I think I was
2: very thick, actually. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> And the thing was, when I look back now, he was never talked about by my mother's family, you know? His name was just not mentioned. And I've seen in letters I wrote to my friend in Vancouver that I went to quite some circumlocutions not to mention him. So I must have, on one level, realized things were not going well in that regard. And then eventually my mother met a man. Um, She was working at Bistiu Wine and Spirits in Takapuna locally known as Piss Spew, weren't his spirits. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so Stu, my stepfather, appeared, Though well, they didn't marry for some time. And what are the odds? He was from, from Vancouver. So people would say, so is this your father from Vancouver? And I would say, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it just became a nightmare, really, from which I think I just retreated by trying not to think about it. But mm. yeah, so this is why this many years later... Come back to it, mm. yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, what about you, Tom? You, um, you know, you grew up uh in Fielding,
3: mm-hmm.
0: your father called you Egghead and mm-hmm. not as a term of endearment. <laughs> um, you ended up with a munched leg in a, in a lawnmower accident and, and, and mm-hmm. ended up with calipers. I mean, uh, that sounds like you, sounds like your childhood a with the rollicking time. Grace, um.
1: <laughs> In some ways, our stories are inverted. My father went out to New Zealand first before mum and my twin sister followed him. He was working in Shannon Airport uh, in Southern Ireland. He was in the RAF. He was in a bar in Munich when he saw a bunch of New Zealand Pākehā beat up a German barman for calling a, a, a Māori a monkey. No. And my father was terribly impressed with this the solidarity displayed by the white New Zealanders supporting their Maori comrade. This is in Germany, which had lost the war f- for the worst racism in, in, on record. Mm. So they absolutely smashed the bar up and British military policemen came running and Dad said, and the New Zealanders kicked a snut out of them as well. <laughs> and, and then they said, then they strolled next door into another bar and kept drinking. And he said, it was so fucking impressive. I said, I'm going to that country. And he... <laughs> he... He fell in love with New Zealand before he even, he even got here, and when he stepped ashore, he loved it, absolutely loved New Zealand, was no intention of ever going back, and most of his mates were, were tangata whenua. But he went whistling happily on his Army Union motorbike, went down to Southern Ireland to work as a, uh, on the building of Shannon Airport, met my mum who was absolutely innocent but glamorous, and mum said she, I let him thread me needle. <laughs> And uh I was at a in a theatre in Wellington and Mum was closer to the actor than you people in the front row are and he was naked as a Dean Parker play. And he was naked with his woolly and mum leaned forward like this and I was, Oh God. And Mum turned to me and said quite loudly, I've only ever had your father's penis inside me. <laughs> and they had they had um, all these extra kids, but, but our father... <laughs> and, and mum said, <laughs> another rude story I have to tell. We were sitting around the table at my house once, and mum said, oh, I didn't want ye. <laughs> oh, I cried tears when I had... She went round the whole table. I ran <laughs> a hot bath and drank a bottle of gin, hoping I'd mi- <laughs> Hoping I'd miscarry when I heard I was carrying you. And we all go, mum, mum, around the ho- Didn't want any of us. And she said, I stuffed myself with toilet paper. <laughs> but your father's sperm always got through. <laughs> uh,
0: Should have been on an ether ad, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and it,
1: apparently, it's a very poor form of contraception. There. <laughs> so she chased him out on the boat. Me and Sue were just twins. And when we arrived... Story I told this morning. He, he, we we just never bonded. Mm. Um, Why
0: do you think that was? Do you think he resented you for curtailing his freedom, or
1: he, he never talked to me about it? But he told Brother Michael and there's the other thing, think Dina will probably. I'm sure it's the same experience. Your parents. Are, you, each child has a different parent. Mm. Unbelievably different. Um, and uh, so he told Michael stuff. He never told me. And he was quite excited to see Mum, meet Mum, coming out on the boat. And he got the pilot and walked on to take him out on the boat when they took the boat up the Ringitota Channel, and it was the Tamara. And Mum didn't know. Mum didn't expect to meet him for another hour. So he told Michael, he said, I went to the cabin. Oh, Jesus Christ, your mother, she had her teeth in a jar by the door, and she was wearing... <laughs> He didn't know Mum had dentures, and Mum had a false teeth. Out, she was wearing a nighty, no makeup, hair and curlers. Sue apparently tottered towards him, and held her hand out. I don't know if we could speak or anything, but it, and I just crapped my pants. And 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 that was it. Um, <laughs> there was no even on his deathbed. He 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 was you know bitter about me to the end, and I did nothing wrong. Particularly, I was a well-behaved, conscientious kid. But I cried easily. So he would um. I, 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 if I walked into a room, I could see that I just pissed him off instantly. So, I so he never out.
0: put a name to it, or or. I, I got,
1: strange, I'm sure you've got it. I've got stacks of letters from people who writing to me about the book, and some of them are writing to me about my mu- about my father. And one said, one guy said, we were he, he was going back to Fielding to stay stay with his father, and he said we were all terribly proud that you were Tom Scott from Fielding. And the listener, and they, the whole bar was all very proud of you, except for your father. And he said, your father would say, will amount to nothing. It's a, f- it's a flash in the pan. <laughs> and he compared Gosh. me to a singer called Lee Grant from Palmerston, remember him? <laughs> He's oh like, no. Lee Grant, he'll be gone next week. and And, and he was desperately hoping and praying that that, my, that it didn't work out and mm. I, I, I don't, know, don't know why but I, I forgive that generation everything now because what they saw and endured was shocking mm. so you, know, you, you have to be tolerant
0: mm. I mean families are such uh, personal and intimate and inevitably sometimes fraught things why write about them Diana?
2: I ask myself that quite (laughs) often. (laughs) I think out of denial and ignorance, really. um, You know, I think I always wanted to try and find out, obviously, and that grew um, towards the end of my mother's life. I sort of really started trying to find out what had happened, and I grilled her, which was she was always, to do her credit, up for it. Mm -hmm. But she would always cry, and so that was hard. Uh, So I think, you know, I probably maybe didn't push as hard as I should. And I start, you know, her cousin was a lawyer who'd helped her a bit. I went to him, are there any records? Because I had a memory of being told that he died in Ontario. We couldn't find a death certificate. We Hmm. still can't find a death certificate. So it seemed like every door I tried to open was shut. But I wanted to find all that and definitely wanted to do that. Thought I'd write it all down for the family sometime. But then uh, Mary Varnum from Our Press She'd rung me a a while back earlier, actually, and said, is there anything you'd like to write about? And I probably threw a couple of ideas at her and said, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) And we just left it at that. And, you know, it didn't occur to me to say, maybe I'll write about that. Mm. You know, Mm. the denial or the weirdness. I might have said, well, I have got a story. But eventually I wrote a little bit about it in The Listener, very obliquely. You know, I'd occasionally approach the subject... Quite obliquely. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh, you've got a strange family. She rang up another time and said, Would you like to write about that? And coming at the moment that it did, when I was really trying to find out, I just felt like I couldn't say no because um, to be offered that, res- you know, it's a responsibility in a way. And mm. I, all I needed was a sign someone was interested because I had written these earlier stories a couple of times. And yeah, you get some lovely feedback and people, but, you know, some of my male colleagues would sort of pat me on the head and say, good you got that out of your system you know (laughs) Um, and so I just didn't think anyone else would be particularly interested so all I needed was her to say yes I I want to read about that Mm. and then I set off on it.
0: I mean having gone through the process and put it out there would you do it again there were moments
2: when I wouldn't I mean just at the moment that's what I think I I mean obviously you know I would Yeah, I'd have to do it anyway. But I think I would have been a lot more um, worried if I'd known... I think the minute it was sent off out of my hands irrevocably, I had a complete meltdown. I was like, you know, when you've pressed send (laughs) (laughs) on something, some terrible email that you shouldn't have sent, I need it back. Um, Because it was very personal and it involved other people, most of whom, who I quote or anything, were involved you know yeah I, had I want to come back to, to that, on that, the basis in of of that that terms of doing but that mm. but there's inevitably the odd one who didn't want to be involved and didn't seem to much like the idea and um, and also you just suddenly the responsibility of it and also the paranoia you know I had always had this sort of low-level paranoia and I think I'm putting it out there that all my children have this heritage and and in the course of writing it, of course, the world was beginning to change in an entirely pleasant way mm. vis-à-vis anti-Semitism and, and strange rulers who doing crazy things. Um, won't mention any names. but no. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, uh, yeah, there's always been that little low-level paranoia, which is one level mm. of it as well. And you're thinking, OK, it's all out there now. Um, yeah, and mostly it's been uh, OK. I've had, a f- like my mother's family... I think anyone who reads the book will know that they were spectacularly disinclined (laughs) to talk about anything that ever happened in that family. My grandmother had eight children, and two of them, one died in her 30s and one died in her 50s, and their names were never mentioned again. Wow. Such was her inability Mm. to deal with such Mm. situations. So, yeah, to then do this, and, you know... (laughs) I, s- I don't think it occurred to me that everyone was—they would read it, you know. <laughs> and two aunties did talk to me, and I remember I say, sent them the book, and I didn't hear anything. Eventually, I rang, and they were okay about it. Um, and when one of them said, "I'm glad you wrote it," I sent her the most gigantic bouquet of flowers out of sheer relief. <laughs> <laughs> was like, that, those flowers, what? You know, so I was just so relieved. But um, then I met another cousin at a reading at Takapuna Library, and she just sort of came up and said coolly, well, it always was a story, wasn't it? Oh, That's all she said. (gasps) (gasps) Ooh. Mm. So, but she at least gave me a hug and was speaking to me, so... Mm, mm. But, yeah, I think I just hadn't... uh, Because I think even as a journalist, I've operated in that way. If you really thought very hard about what you're Mm. doing Mm. and the possible repercussions, um, I would find it paralyzing. So I think I've learned a certain... Mm. way to dissociate mm. from It's it.
0: interesting, Tina McAretty sort of said that um, uh, earlier a little bit about to what um, extent you ask permission and yes. at the end you, you have to ask yourself permission. And I've
2: spoken to sterner s- souls than me Daniel Mendelssohn who I mentioned in the book who's mm. a great writer and classicist and TV reviewer in general Tom Scottian sort of person who does <laughs> everything well. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, oh, he, he was at a writer's festival. I interviewed him and talked to him, but he was also at a writer's festival and in a memoir mm. panel sort of thing. And some, another writer was asked, you know, oh, yes, I showed it to every member of my family and if they wanted change as well. And they said, and how about you, Daniel? And he just said, nah, it's my story. And, you know, tough, I'm telling it. And I thought, ooh, I'd like to be able to think <laughs> like that. But, but in I the end, you have to be a bit ruthless. Mm. I think there's a level you can't let that, or you wouldn't do it.
3: Mm.
0: I mean, what about you, Tom? Why did you decide to write about family? I mean, as, as you say, you've, you've written plays about both your uh, mum and your dad, and... It I thought the time was right
1: to have the entire memoir field covered this year. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd sweep all before me and win, and then bloody Dinah to <laughs> <laughs> And her book is stunning. It's beautiful. If anyone doesn't own a copy, you have to. You'll cry. You'll laugh. It's absolutely exquisitely written, and... It's important because it shows that 12,000 miles away from the darkest chapter in human history, it's still rippling. There's still shadows. And someone, someone asked Chairman Mao uh, um, what he thought the impact of the French Revolution had been, and he said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true of the Holocaust. Yeah. The, the Holocaust, yeah. it's yeah. still the most devastating thing. The, the, the use of industry, the use of the latest technology... I think we were talking about your family, Tom. No, it's very similar. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I think my father was a, was a, was a strange way. Well, I wouldn't have ended up here if it hadn't been for the war. Um, but in terms of d- d- how did I feel about writing the book? Mm. In our house, that's just uh, the, the dinner table. Everyone's talking at once. Not when my father when he was there. It, it just went silent. He'd, he'd walk in and it would just absolutely go silent. He'd, he'd come and drunk almost every night, and he would say, to "Did anyone ring for me? No, Dad. The Pope, no. Oh. Did perchance the Pontiff himself ring for me? No, Dad. Frank Sinatra, no, Dad. The Duke of Argyle. I was staggered at the list that would go on. And, <laughs> you know, Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> did he? Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> ring for me? And this would go. We'd go, "No, Dad. No, Dad. No, Dad." Then he'd turn to my mother and say. Christ, you're ugly. Put your teeth in, woman. They are in. Take them out. That might help. So that went on every night, almost every night. Some nights he would have a cup. He'd give his liver a rest. But when he was out of the room, we were all there was just a babble of of people talking. And if my sisters at a dinner party. Sister Sally is funny. Sister Jane is funny. Sister Sue was funny. Michael was a hoot. Robbie's the only quiet one, really, brother Rob. So we're all babbling away, and all quiet, they all quite they suited the family tree. You talk about aunts and uncles. We never had a single relative, um, as if we were just arose spontaneously, and uh, and we never igno- our father never acknowledged birthdays. I did, I've never seen a picture of his family, mm. and, and Mum had a couple of smudge photographs of hers. The Scots just arrived, at a, at a random mutation in the Manawatu. two. So the <laughs> <laughs> we have no fucker papa, n- no no backstory. Obviously we do. Michael went back to Northern Ireland once to meet uh, my father's family. And my father was sort of unemployed or and out of work or So and but he was obviously intelligent. And but he, Mickey went back. Mickey was staggered. There are judges and lawyers and doctors on his side of the family. He was the one disappointment. And his older brother, Paddy, said to Michael, is your father still a sarcastic bastard? <laughs> Mickey said, yes, I think that sums him up very well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the only contact we've ever had with um, that side of the family.
0: Mm. So, I mean, you had to find a backstory for Daylight Atheist. Day uh, so I how invent- much of that I, is invented and how much I, of it he is He told Michael true? a
1: story. Um, again, Michael, he told things, he shared things with Michael. That there was an aunt who was barren. And and um, he was from a large Protestant family in Northern Ireland, and they sh- and they, his family sent the, my father off to live with her for a, a few years, and he really resented it. And I had a, had a Maori had a Maori friend. I still I put an ad in the paper. Pākehā needs Maori friend, <laughs> and and um, so I can bring it up at parties. And, and this person was adopted out to live with an aunt, and I said. You know, this, this. And I said, you must have fucking hated that. The rest of your family at home, and you're off living with someone else. <laughs> I said, I don't believe that bullshit. That the, the that the extended family is the same thing as your own family. And 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 he said, no, it was terrible. It was terrible. You've why, why am I here? Mum and dad and my brothers and sisters mm. are laughing, ten, fifteen, twenty miles away. So my father hated it. And I, in the daylight atheist, I kind of went back into that and sort of gave that as possibly an, an excuse an for, mm. yeah, for, for how we behaved. Mm.
0: Uh, I mean, Diana, you wrote of your father, in my narrative, he was a passive victim, but on this sort of voyage, everything you think you know can turn out to be wrong. Who was the father that you thought you knew when you started this process, and how did that change?
2: Well, yeah, I think, uh, obviously, to me, it was just this completely tragic story of a person who had been destroyed piece by piece, which it is. That's not untrue. Mm. It is. And I think I can remember the moment at which it sort of hit me that he had lost everything twice, every single thing, entire family, everything he owned, you know, everything twice. And we were implicated in one of those times. It's the most horrific realization. for which there is just no escape from the guilt. Um, so I just, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that says, you've got to get rid of the guilt, because I think there just isn't an, es- an escape from it. But, um, but I think in the process of doing this, of course, you find out more people. I have a cousin. Uh, th- actually, that quote comes out of the reading I'm going to do. Mm. I have a, a, had a cousin, my late cousin Joe, who I didn't discover for family weird reasons. Why didn't I know about him? Uh, until 2006 and he was 17 when the survivors came back and so I learned from him some things about what my father was like and you know little bits about what had happened and um, but it was more the third generation you know my generation are hopeless you know we're all scarred and wrecked and you know (laughs) barely able to, to talk about these things amongst ourselves my brother and I can but you know it's hard. It's hard, and it's affected everyone differently. But the third generation come along, and they hear these stories. A, why didn't you ever tell me? Mm. And I think I <laughs> thought I had. You know, you do that in families. You think you thought you'd talked about it. Um, and I mentioned that in the book, you know, um, my grandchild looking at a photo and saying, who's that? And me kind of saying, oh, it's your grand... You know, changing the subject quite quickly, because I think, how do I go into this with this little gorgeous six-year-old looking up at me with his hopeful, optimistic little face? Well... <laughs> you know, listen to this story. But my daughter (coughs) and my nieces, um, when they, they pushed me really hard, like my daughter will say she bullied me to to keep going, because I'd say, oh, I can't find anything. And they'd say, it's ridiculous, you cannot know, not know where your father is buried, you can't. It's just absurd and it's not good enough, you know. And so they would push and shove. But also they had this view of him. um, They saw the side that he had survived something unspeakable. What kind of a person must he have been, able to, been to be able to do that? He'd mm. survived living in the woods. He'd survived, tried to start again. Um, so they have this different picture of him, which I think I'll mention, you know, if, if we do the reading. Yeah, would you want to do the reading now? Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they've been an absolute, you know, for me. Um, it, nothing can change the past, but, and it's way too late for my father, but it's extremely comforting to know that his memory is carried in this different way by that generation. Mm. So. Yeah, so this is about when I first start talking to Joe, who was in his late 70s when I finally got to know him. Joe tells me what I most want to know, the story of my father. Ben Mitchell was a young, very athletic man, he writes to me. They were en route to Treblinka, which was not a concentration camp, but a killing centre about two hours north of Warsaw. There, the Nazis established ga- gas chambers to kill the Jews. Ben Wichita jumped off the train. The trains had little windows with barbed wire, but my father managed to get out. He must have been very thin to do that, Joe says. He lived in the forest until the end of the war. I'll learn from his post-liberation registration card and from a list made when he was liberated that he was found with partisans and others who'd escaped from ghettos and from the Majdanek concentration camp near Lublin. Did he fight? I asked Joe. Of course he fought, says Joe. He wouldn't have survived if he didn't fight. Joe tells me that after the war, Uncle Sy searched and searched for family members, but after he found Ben, the reunion in New York did not go well. Your father came to my house with a guitar, which was the wrong thing to do, by the way, Joe says. He looked bohemian, not what was expected. He looked merry. I can't explain it, said Joe, he looked fine. He didn't look like he had a problem in the world. Everybody pleaded with him to stay in New York and everything would be fine they would take care of him, because he wasn't all put together, you know. If you get out of the ghetto and all this crazy running around, you don't expect to be perfectly stable. Jumping off the train, living like an animal for three years with a little terrorist group who ran around and tried to knock off Germans and steal things to survive. I had somehow imagined my father just hidden in a box under the ground until liberation. But of course, that never could have been true. He was young, strong, smart, and he had to eat. He had to live, he had to fight. As my daughter Monica will put it, that's some inglorious bastard's shit. <laughs> so what did my father have to do to survive? I might have been frightened by his rages, but I'd, never, I'd known him as a gentleman opposed to violence. In my narrative, he was a passive victim, but on this sort of voyage, everything you think you know can turn out to be wrong. To Joe, he was maddeningly stubborn. Why the hell didn't he stay in New York? It doesn't didn't make sense fifty years ago, it doesn't make sense today. Everyone tried to persuade him to stay. Uncle Cy si was making a lot of money. He made your father a wonderful offer, Joe says. And he goes on to say about his mother, Sabina, my father's aunt, who also got out in the twenties. My mother pleaded with him in Yiddish. He was going so far away, it wasn't around the corner. He wouldn't he would pay attention to no one. Your father was a very handsome, mus- musically talented and well-spoken man, all assets that would benefit him. Our family didn't understand his move far off to Canada. On the positive side, Joe says, if Ben had gone to Van- hadn't gone to Vancouver, he wouldn't have met your mother, and you and I wouldn't be talking now. Uncle Si, who'd supported my father so far, arranged to send money every month. Um... <coughs> Yeah, Joe understands what war can do. He served in Korea in the 1950s, an experience that affected him deeply. He spent years of his life researching and teaching about what happened to our family and to all the Jews of Nazi-occupied Europe. Every time we talk, he says, God, how I hate those Nazi bastards. His anger remains white-hot for his aunts and uncles and their children, for my grandmother Rackler, our great-grandmother Brandler, and for the survivors. Your dad went through hell and back and never recovered. from the Holocaust, he ran away from his Jewishness, his heritage, his family. After my father left his aunt's house in New York, Sabina said something that made an impression on 17-year-old Joe. Please forgive my terrible Yiddish. Er is a crank mensch, he's a sick man. When she heard years later that my father was dead, she believed he'd killed himself. The things Joe has told me suggest there was an unbridgeable gulf between the family members who during the war had been helpless and distraught. But safe in America, and those who turned up afterwards, having just walked out of hell. Joe says there's no point trying to figure out why my father didn't stay with what little family he had left. You as a daughter, you can go backwards and try and figure it out, but you won't. I was present, and I can't figure it out, and I'm pretty smart. We can't undo this. But to undo it is what I want. I want there to be a why. On the train to to Treblinka, my father saw a tiny window he could squeeze through, He jumped down into the snow. When he and Paul got to America, that's his uncle Paul, who was one of the other survivors, they faced the question, what about the others? Joe tells me Sabina was angry that Paul arrived with a few family diamonds still sewn into the lining of his coat. He said, she had a guilt complex about leaving Poland and having almost her entire family killed. She was critical of him for not taking care of their mother. My father, too, may have felt judged for not saving his mother. Maybe he felt he needed to take to his heels and again run for his life.
0: Well, mm. thank you. I mean, what about you, Tom? Were you looking for a why? Was that part I of just the been motivation? Dinah was
1: saying that. There's a line in the Primo Levi book, there is no why in Auschwitz. Ian yeah one of my favorite Beatles songs is tell me why <laughs> um maybe when i ma- when I heard the story from Michael about uh, my father being uh, going off to live with his with his aunt but uh, i don't feel guilty i mean uh, you've taken all the world war two on your shoulders and, and I, my uh, uh, bit. not well, ninety nine <laughs> i don't feel um feel bad, I don't feel guilty, but I feel sorry for my father and sorry for my mother, but I, I'm not responsible for anything they did, I'm absolutely totally responsible for everything I've done, but not, f- not for what other people have done, sometimes you contribute, so I wasn't searching for a why, I just knew when you were sitting down, I remember sitting in, in when I was a vet student where people were sitting around talking about their tough childhoods and stuff, and oh we had to cancel our trip to Switzerland this year, we couldn't go, sk- couldn't go skiing because <laughs> dad had some stuff. You go, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, <laughs> and uh, it, it, sitting in school and people would open their school lunch boxes and they'd have, some mothers would, be, they'd peel the orange all the way around you know, like, perfectly and they'd have beautiful lunches and stuff and story I told this morning, and on Mufti Day, it's Fielding Ag, you could wear, didn't have to wear a uniform for the third form and the fourth form in the fifth form, I had, to we- I had to wear my school uniform. And it was the only clothes I had. And, um, and the only other people who arrived on the school bus to, in school uniform, all the other kids tumbled off in jeans and jackets and hoop skirts and cardigans and stuff, looking really lovely. It was me, little Tommy Scott, and the, the Maori kids. And I, mean, that's, I wanted to explain how that happened.
0: Was there a moment in your childhood at which you realised this is not a normal family?
1: Yeah, well, um, there was a wealthy family out the road called the Ogles in Combolton Road. Uh, They had a fantastic house. that had a circular driveway, had a grass tennis court. They had a lounge so posh no one went into it ever. (laughs) (laughs) And they had another lounge, which is the family room, they listened to the radio. They had a kitchen with a big table and a walk-in pantry. Always associated a walk-in pantry with luxury. They had a walk-in chiller with meat hanging from hooks and oh. stuff. And I'd got the road, and Mrs Ogle, I'd told Mrs Ogle stories from home about Mum painting. The lino was all worn on the floor in, in, in the bathroom, brown lakes where the lino had worn out. So there's a high tide mark of worn lino. Then there's a deep ocean of the timber coming through. And Mum got test paint pots from Dulux and got the old man's shaving brush and dipped the shaving brush into the test pots of paint there's a horrible pastel pink green and pastel pink uh, pink, you know, uh, pastel greens and pinks on the floor. And for some reason, Mum just put the brush back in. Up and, and my father said, who the fuck has been in <laughs> And Mum denied all knowledge. And we were, we, he was standing on the proof. <laughs> 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 and and I'd go up the road to the Ogles and tell these stories, and I remember Mrs. Ogle. And this is absolutely true. She did it several times, but the first time, she she was laughing her head off, and then she just pissed her pants at the dinner at the table. <laughs> and then I thought, oh oh, stories, funny stories have power.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think you said of the, of um, David Longy that he used his wit as. Um, both shield and... Was it shield and sword or shield? Yeah, or yeah. Head? David... Was, was that the same... Si- yeah, was probably. It, is that true of you? A little the, bit that of Was, that. was it a little bit of a defence message? Yeah,
1: David was once 29 stone, couldn't cross his legs, couldn't step off a chair without worrying about ripping all the leg- ligaments and tendons in his ankle. So he... And there's pictures of David at high school. It looks like the class has two form teachers. No. One form teacher at one end is the teacher. The other person wearing the suit is David, because it wasn't a high school uniform in his size. He had to get a bespoke suit made for him to high school, and he was so grotesquely fat that he made all this noise. You heard David long before you saw him. "Ah, ah," And he he attracted attention, and he cracked jokes. So it was his way of saying, I'm the centre of attention, not because I'm a figure of pity, uh, someone you should feel sorry for, but someone who... Who's, who's going to be funny and entertaining. And I, when I had my leg in callipers dragging at the school, that and, I, and I, other kids were, were teasing and joking, and I knew if I if I started exaggerating my my limp, it got more laughs. And that's when I learned that, hey, if you you can use comedy as a... You can deflect it if, if you get the joke in first.
0: But some of these experiences were pretty extreme. I mean, you found out after your father died that he had basically got out a scalpel and removed your face from every family yeah, photograph. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with something like
1: that? Well, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sick and twisted myself. I, was, I thought, what a wonderful anecdote. <laughs> uh, I, um, well, this is worth four dinner parties. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. What, what I was really gobsmacked was the beautiful precision. It wasn't a savage, furious removal of me. It was carefully done. He actually sent. I, I, I toyed with the publisher. He sent a postcard to me after I foolishly appeared on television, talking about him, and there was a postcard of a of a foal, and its mum, a mare, and a foal. And he would pencilled in on the the foal on the behind the mother, the, the mare was having a dump, and there was his circles of poo dropping out of its bum, and he put a little arrow to the poo. Egghead. Then on the other side, um, he'd give twelve reasons why I detest and loathe egghead. And I've, I've got it. I've got it. I read it out, and I look at it, and I'm ju- it, it, it doesn't bring tears to my eyes. It, ju- it just—it yeah. just wonder. It just wonder how on earth did the, this venom come from? And I, I showed it. Showed, I showed it to everyone. and she said, "That's awful. How can you?" She said, "You should burn that." Said, no, I'm not burning it. You, you know, that's. But I. I wondered whether I was gonna put it in the book and I thought if I put it in the book I'll just be saying, Look what I had to put up with and, and there would be an element of skiting so I uh, I also contemplated when I sent him a book which I dedicated to him to my father who I love but can't remember why uh, <laughs> he he wiped his ass on it and sent it back and it came back to me with covered in wow. excrement. Wow. But I d I, I didn't that in the book, either because I thought that would, I wrote about that, but I, yeah.
0: so I'm interested in that process of what mm. you decide to put in and what you leave out, and how that um, conversation happens. Given that you know memoir is such an interesting genre, in that obviously it's your story, but it's also necessarily other people's stories. Especially mm. when you're talking about family, it's your you know it's your mother's story, it's your father's story, it's your it's your siblings' stories. I mean, how did you navigate that process? Diana, it's that with you of deciding what you can and can't use, with to what extent you need to ask permission, and and what you leave out.
2: Yeah, well, I think um, you know I've heard other artists talking about this this over this festival. Uh, I think Jenny Pet, one of them said, or maybe it was Tina, that um, the author's note is your friend. You know, and so I've got mm-hmm. an author's note saying. Something along the lines of, you know, this is my personal version of the family story. You you need to make it very clear that you're not trying to speak for anyone else. And it's exactly what Tom was... We were talking about. Um, Everyone, every sibling in a family can have a different family. Mm. You can't at all assume the experience is the same. But I think when it came to my mother and father, um, I decided not too much would be off-limits about that. In fact, probably... You know, I've recorded some of his autopsy. You know, it's down to the weight mm. of his heart. So I decided that after all those years of not knowing anything, I was going to put as much, which still isn't much, put as much as I know about him in there. And my mother, I think because we'd talked a lot beforehand and before she died, and I think we had a very close relationship. Uh, it has made me look at her a little bit differently the ruthlessness that she had to have to do what she did. And um, this is where family disagreements can come up. You mm. know, To me, I'm like Tom, that what, that mo- what my mother and father went through. I mean, my mother didn't go through the Holocaust, but she was child of the Depression, family of eight, oldest. She never had a bed to call her own, and if she did get into a bed, it had a toddler <laughs> weeing in it. Um, mm. you know. And it was... What was that phrase... Um, First up, best dressed in that yeah, household. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she had a formidable, my nana, really, a woman you wouldn't want to cross. They all had to pretend to vote national. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so she had a tough time, and I'm just not judging her. Um, so that that can create difficulties. Hmm. But for me, I want to tell the truth, but I wanted to make it clear, and I hope I have, that I didn't judge her. But I can wish she did some things differently the parenting we got was suboptimal for various reasons <laughs> at times. But uh, she and I were always close. She was always my... I was lucky I had her as the um, immovable point of reference. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you've got one reasonably functional parent, mm-hmm. you're okay. If you've got neither, well, it's t- really tough. But I mean, did um,
0: finding out more about your father and what he'd gone through change the way that you viewed her and, and also yourself, I guess?
2: Uh, you mean finding out what happened to him after she left mm. yeah well I mean that is a bone of contention you know to me I think I was you know from the age of 12 things were really going downhill and I can remember I it was ironic because I was just beginning to really get to know my father even though he was becoming this strange presence in the household, and having these rages where he'd smash his hand on the table so we had tea stains on the ceiling. We'd just quietly ceased bringing friends home. You know, didn't really think about it, but just decided that wasn't going to be a good idea. Uh, But, you know, we started to talk about (coughs) politics and things because I hadn't, you know... I was a middle child, kept my head down, tried to avoid trouble, didn't get banished to my room for six weeks like my older sister. And... um, yeah, so I was beginning to finally develop a re- relationship with him and kind of admire his mind and things. And at the same time, I'd go and say goodnight to my mother, and she'd be weeping, and she had no one else to talk to because he wouldn't let her see. Well, if sh- she had to sneak out, if she was going to, by the stage, see her old friends, their old friends, she had no money of her own. She was kind of a, you know, a prisoner in a way. He didn't mean to, but that's how it was playing out. So I remember that, and so you know I know what she went through. So I guess her decisions, I have to view, Hmm. you know, Hmm. he had to escape. She came to a point where she had to escape.
0: Um, I mean, what about you, Tom? You said this morning, I think, that you didn't ask permission, I suppose, of your other siblings, or you didn't ask for their perspective. So how did you navigate that process of... Uh, the fact that you're, it's your story, but it's also other
1: people's stories. Well, Sue was worried about the play, The Dad of the Atheist, oh, Sister right. Sue. Mm-hmm. she said, oh, you don't know. It's all right for you, you live in Wellington, you're anonymous. And I said, well, what, I've failed terribly by the <laughs> <my mom." laughs> <laughs> uh, um, God, what a hurtful thing. <laughs> she said, oh, I'm the Napier. People know who I am and I'll go down the street and people say, that's the person whose mother couldn't afford knickers and my father was a drunk. <laughs> I said, Sue, they won't. They won't. people will, you know, you're already funny and charming. Everyone loves you. You're just, you're great. It's not going to change anything. If anything, your your status will go up. And Sue (laughs) rang me back a few months later. She said, oh, God, I can't go to a supermarket with people throwing your arms around me. Oh, Sue, you're amazing what (laughs) you put up with. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no idea. Oh, you're, and Sue said, you're quite right. It's, uh." (laughs) and Sue has went on a, is now writing a play of her own but it's not about the parents because I've cornered them, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Um It's a travel... Uh, it's, it'll make a... It's a brilliantly funny monologue about, about a trip she went with, with a friend and, and, and Sue's, Sue's a very funny, as I said, b- alluded to before, my, f- my family and she, it's very funny. It's a slightly vulgar story. We were at a dinner party in Wellington and all the people were all there and somehow or other, the, the subject of anal sex came up. <laughs> I didn't bring it up, that's for certain. <laughs> And uh, Sue said, you know, I've never had anal sex on purpose. <laughs> and so the, so the Scott family are full of people <laughs> who, we just don't behave like normal reticent uh, or oh, knock-the-bugger-off Kiwis. It's uh, we, we, a family full of blurters. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm a little scared to ask now. But so, what? What did you leave out? What did you leave out? You
1: leave out? Of my what, book. Other
0: than you, so, you. Um, those I you? left
1: out. I decided that that I had no right to be too honest about. I could be very honest about what happened to me. I mean, I owned up to thinking I had venereal disease, and a virgin at the same time. It was a torment. From <laughs> I won't go into the details here. <laughs> And I was a wretchedly unhappy person at university because girls are these magical, mystical, exotic women. Girls grow up with themselves. They know there's nothing magical about being a woman, <laughs> particularly. And, um, it, it, but I, I thought... I, so I was unhappy and lonely at university. I was the life and soul of every party and very, very lonely. I thought, mm-hmm. like, I have to write about that. But I had no... When I wrote about when relationships failed... I th- I thought I just I copped, I stole a Bob Dylan line. He's um, you're right from your side, I'm right from mine. We're just one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. And I, I just used so I, I I didn't want my kids to pick it up and read anything negative about about their their their, their mother or mother's complicated life. <laughs> and, and and they haven't. And right. um and there's been no. The lawyers went through it with a fine turn comb, but mostly, <laughs> what would politicians say? And um, and and I'd, I didn't mind being. I had to be very careful about Mike Moore and his wife, who behaved very badly on the trip, and we had to tiptoe through that. And Mike Moore's dying now, so I, uh, give me a few weeks, and I can tell you the complete story. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> so and and, and David Longie, again, you couldn't. Uh, I was careful to protect. Politicians who've had...
0: I mean, you made an interesting point this morning saying that um, you... um, I've just completely escaped my brain. (laughs) 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 No, that um, when we think about... uh, Childhood probably particularly, but memory, the quirk of memory, is that we tend to remember the bad stuff and the joy or the good experiences all kind of blend into one. So Mm. I guess, you know, in your memoir... The the pictures that you draw of your parents are they portraits or are they caricatures? Where you know you've kind of just. What I, guess uh, all I can difference. say is
1: that my brothers and sisters thought thought they were accurate.
0: Right.
1: They Rob said, "Oh, you got the old man properly." <laughs> That's how Rob speaks. <laughs> and Sue, twin sister Sue, who is much as she's done the only family tree when she went back to Ireland, and I've been back to the cottage where Mum was conceived and born and met my relatives. I have to say they were staggeringly stupid and unimpressive. <laughs> uh, th- um, they said, well, ''What are you like about Ireland, Thomas?'' ''Oh, I'm very fond of Van Morrison.'' ''Ah, oh, and who would he be?'' And, I, <laughs> uh, and, and my, my first-generation relatives were not... <laughs> unlike the ones in on Northern Ireland with my father, who apparently were very smart. Mum's relatives were... <laughs> mum, was a, mum was the brightest knife in the drawer. And, and, and so, but Sue went back, she did the family history... I was worried about if anyone, if there was any faults in the book, Sue would be the one to to spot them. And and um, she she couldn't find any. To, and Is I was there p- anything I was
0: that that either of you regret putting in? I mean, Tom, you did that interview with the the TVNZ yeah. Doco about your father, and uh, yeah. I guess everybody that you have showed that to has. I don't know if it was the word shocked, but by what did your friend uh, I think said every everything you said was undoubtedly was true, Jesus, but that's not I the. I stepped down off the cross the and said,
1: "Look at the scars on my hands, you know, and look at the cut on the ribs." I was I was showing off about what I'd been through, hmm. which is not on the scale of what your dad had been through. So I, it was completely disproportionate, self-pity. I went on. I was, it was never supposed to be screened. The psychiatrist wanted to do a thing called on the couch, and they asked they asked me to be the first person to do it. So. It's the first time anyone ever asked me to about, talk about my father. And it was the first time I had talked about him, I told funny stories mm. about my father being funny. Like my father's great quote on parenting. I remember him saying once when some kids were misbehaving, there is no such thing as a bad parent. There are only bad children. <laughs> And I thought that was brilliant. I was about <laughs> nine. I thought, shit, that's a good line. I, I tucked all these things away. But I'd never talked about my, my father being an alcoholic and being poor and stuff. And I got carried away. The psychiatrist was quite good. And I was quite loquacious. And, and th- but I did it on the grounds it would never be broadcast. Mm. They interviewed everyone else, all these other New, New Zealand writers and poets and politicians, and they were all circumspect and guarded and sensible. And they thought well, it was all rather dull, really. Can we, um, <laughs> We'd like to, you know, use yours, and I, I, I foolishly said yes.
0: Does it, did you regret it?
1: Yeah, I did because um, virtually no one said it was a good idea. Um, I remember showing it to Carol Hirschfeld, mm. who, who was I was hoping to pursue amorously, <laughs> but I um, had to resort to morphine in the end. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I showed it to Carol. And I said, Oh no, no, Look, look what I've been through. And Carol, I, we got about two minutes in, and Carol stood up off the sofa and said, switch it off. And I said, why? She said, this is cruel. This is cruel. And another close friend of mine who's a writer said to me, Tom, you're smashing a, 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 a line of peanut with a sledgehammer. He said, your father is a, is a sick old man in fielding. You're a well-known New Zealander, and you have publicly punished him and, and with disproportionate force. And I was like, oh, he had it coming sort of thing. And he said, no, that's... A, that uh, You behave badly, and I, it took me a long time to accept that I had behaved badly. It was a terrible mistake. Though to my father's credit, when he saw it broadcast on TV, he, he never rang me, ever. And I never rang him, but he never rang us. He never came to weddings, he never came to sports days, he never came to parent-teacher meetings, he never dropped us off anywhere. One dance was one. So I was told a quick lie then, corrected myself. But he rang me up out of the blue and said, ''Ah, oh, is that you, Egghead?'' ''Yes?'' I saw you on the television. You're quite the big man these days. You've been a lot of demand in Auckland and other places north. You'd probably be driving back and forth from Wellington. On your way north, it's a long trip in a car. you would probably thinking that you'd do with a cup of tea. If you're thinking of calling into fielding for a cup of tea, don't fucking bother. <laughs> and then hung up. And I, I was terribly impressed. I thought, geez, he was so... He was obviously furious, but the the way the way he set up the punchline was just brilliant. And,
3: <laughs>
1: and, uh, and don't fucking bother. That was just a. <laughs> <laughs> he was a class act. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, you wouldn't be who you are, mm. and I wouldn't be who I am if we hadn't. So, do had you these can feel
0: conflicted about it? that? That that you know that's obviously presumably where you got your whip from. Do I feel grateful
1: to him for, for for?
0: Or do you feel conflicted about? I guess about. The fact that he was so cruel to you, but at the same time that you... something your was...
1: He was as much of a given as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That's just who he was. I I could see... I could see that people... The woman... He was a very handsome man, and, and the woman and all the other wives in Combolton Road were... They all had incredibly dull men. Men like Kevin and Neil and Trevor and... <laughs> and, and uh <laughs> And they would call and have afternoon tea with mum occasionally, and my father would, would grab the teapot, said I'll be mother, chalet. And Mum would go, oh, nervously. And they, all the ladies were sitting there, some of them wearing gloves in those days. All <laughs> nice all very nicely done. And now pretty crappy house. And the old man would grab the teapot, I'll be mother, and he'd grab the teapot and he'd whip it right up high and pour the tea into the cups so it of splashed everywhere. What does that remind you of, girls? <laughs> Yellow, hot and steaming, <laughs> pouring from a tube. <laughs> and, you know, but making allusions to being urine. And, and mum would go, oh, isn't he awful, isn't he awful? And she was in agony. And they were, but I could see that they were actually amused by him. He, <laughs> mm. he, I could see that his comedy, cruel and dangerous as it was, did give him a certain power there and authority. And he was the centre of attention. He was the centre of attention in every pub he went to as well.
0: Mm. Do we have time for a quick reading before we open the floor
1: but my, I'm going to sound terribly shallow after her reading. <laughs> Do you want a shallow reading?
2: <laughs> it's an amazing book. It's fantastic. No, it is brilliant. Yeah. Hilarious.
1: This is... Um, I got thrown out of vet school for being stupid. After my ignominious departure from the vet school, I had a year to kill before Massey set up physiology as a stage 3 unit, which I needed to complete a rather tatty Bachelor of Science degree. I did a philosophy paper and a biochemistry paper, but mostly I drew cartoons for the student newspaper Chaff and was judge of a Miss Massey competition held on the (laughs) cricket oval in front of the refectory. I can picture it now. It was a warm, still evening. The grass was the colour of emerald. The setting sun lent lent the terracotta art deco buildings a pink glow. Young girls' hair and make-up perfect, jewellery sparkling, wearing glamorous gowns, approached the oval in an excited, giggling gaggle, falling silent when they saw the temporary drafting yards that some ag students had set up on the lawn. (laughs) Guys in black bush singlets, shorts and gumboots, and this was well before Fred Dagg, armed with whistles and rattles and assisted by yapping dogs, (laughs) rounded them up into holding (laughs) pen. where they stood ashen-faced until another gate was thrown open and then with a lot more shouting and barking they were unceremoniously herded down a narrow race on either side of which guys in white coats armed with red and blue rattle marked them on the back as they tottered past in their high heels (laughs) towards a drafting gate to be culled into the clearly identified finalist pen or the ugly pen. Dazed girls fought back tears when they examined ruined ball gowns, not to mention the more permanent, incalculable damage to their self-esteem if they ended up in the ugly pen. I hasten to add here that I was not part of the pre-selection process. I was dressed somberly in a tuxedo, as were the city councillor and the local MP, the rotund and jolly Joe Walding. We merely mingled with the finalists and deliberated into private, in private to declare the winner. I know what you're thinking. And I quite agree. We have gone backwards as a society. (laughs) Brilliant.
0: So on that note, I will open the floor for questions.
3: some of which you think you shouldn't put in, but it's kind of important because it explains so much. And I think you said, David you've got to be ruthless. How do you come to terms, or do you, or, or are you just at the point where stuff it, this is my story, this is how it is, shit happens, feel the How do you come to terms
2: Well, I think exactly as you said, um, there are some things you put in with a little bit of trepidation because they're true and they explain something or or they're important (coughs) to say. Um, And I think, um, yeah, there is a bit of ruthlessness involved in that because, but, you know, I did think about everything very carefully and there's a lot that didn't go in in the sense that When you start remembering, I don't know if you've had more experience in this, about things, you know, you put a lot down because you remember it. You think, oh, I've forgotten about that, you know, and it has to come back out. But, um, yeah, I think, for me, uh, you know, I still wake up at four in the morning sometimes and think about a passage and think how it might be read by some (laughs) relative, you know. So, yeah, I haven't really come to terms with it, but I've sort of... The only thing I've come to terms with is to decide that was the best I could do at the time. With due care, I did try to... And, you know, I remember when I was freaking out and melting down, basically. Poor Chris, he could tell stories about that. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, uh, friends would say, well, y- y- you were never cruel. You were never... You know, they uh, You know, or I'd ask, you know, are you sure I wasn't mean or, or whatever? And so I think you try, yeah, to do it with a good heart. And, um, yeah, mostly touch touchwood. I'm sure the ones that absolutely hate it haven't been in touch, but uh, it has been too it bad. it
3: might be guilt. I know for me, um, it was validation when other people said, oh, that was their, you know, their favourite part. And yet, for immediate
2: family, it was like, oh, did you put that mm, in? Mm. kind of illustrated at the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I did do it belatedly after it was too late to do anything about it. I thought, why didn't I think of doing this? You know, writing a family memoir on Google. (laughs) This is what not to do. Oh, shit. (laughs) Why didn't I I read this at the (laughs) beginning? (laughs) But the the range was very wide. I don't know, you know, on one hand, it said, it's your story. You're allowed to tell it. You know, don't defame anyone. Don't get sued. But beyond that, and, you know, one writer had the answer, you know, you shouldn't have said that about your, your sister or whatever. Well, she shouldn't have been such a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, the mm.
0: one
3: you said I'd get sued, and as it was ACC, I
0: said, I'll oh, stop it. I was going to leave it in. <laughs> mm. Good Thank you. you. So, do we have <laughs> any more questions?
2: No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sure not. Um, no. Um, I think, uh, yes, I think, uh, I mean, part of what this book about is about is how it affects everyone mm. down through generations. Mm. And mm. as is being proven now, still a little bit up in the air, but epigenetically, mm. things get passed down, don't they? And yeah. And uh, I don't know how you feel about your kids, whether...
1: The, the children, only one of them's read it. And the others, I I haven't discussed it with them. They're very proud of the fact that I can run her up to Diane. Sorry. They're
2: very happy for me.
1: (laughs) Um, Will, who's actually not my flesh and blood, as my mum said of him, my Irish mother said, Abel and I have a blended family, and mum said, there's something about that cat, Will. He's not my flesh and blood, but he's something special. And Will because he's not my flesh, but he's the only one that's read it and commented on it, and he said, he said, well done. He said, that's terrific. And he said, I learnt a lot about New Zealand reading it, which, which, which he enjoyed the history mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam and Rosie said, well done, Dad, and they came to the launch. Sam is in the Phoenix Foundation his' lead singer and, and a very uh, very gifted and sensitive boy. I think they've... they've I, think, I haven't asked, but I think they've made a pact my my suspicion is, they said to Mum, "We're not discussing it with Dad, and we're not discussing it with you." I think okay. that's what's happened. There's been some sort of Pax Britannica where they <laughs> it's not going to be discussed. And my <coughs> older boy in in, in Britain, um Britain, uh, Sean Big Sean, he he he's in Britain. and I had to bring him a copy, so I haven't. I left him a copy, and he's... oh, I get round to reading this. So I I did read him one line when uh, when I was. And I was looking after him I, when, when he was, the day he was born, I floated back to the cot I went back to teaching the same morning he was he was born, I was determined to be the best dad ever I could be, and certainly better than my father and when I was older, I said to Mum one day, "Oh, and I was close to tears so i don 't think I always was i don 't think I was always the best dad to, to Sean. I feel bad about about, about that i don 't think I was the best dad I could have been to Sean, and I was hoping for some sort of affirmative action from Mum. <laughs> No, no, you weren't. You were a piss poor dad to that poor child. Fuck, that's <laughs> oh, f- not what I was hoping. You let him down badly. <laughs> so,
0: so, uh, so I
1: told Sean this line, and he's, oh, that's Nana, and he just pissed himself laughing. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I. I have an unbelievable capacity to forgive myself. It's <laughs>
0: <interesting>. <laughs> So when's Sean's memoir coming out? <laughs> yes, what about that? Uh, we may have about about time that. for one more, yeah.
1: Keep yeah yeah there. from
2: time to time um i think the, it's like anything isn't it the more you think about a word you, know, you, you you it seems absurd and the more you think about a memory you're not sure you you someone told it to or you or remember it mm. but the good thing about my stories <laughs> with my father it was su- it was always strange from the time i was a baby there was always a sense of things not being quite right and so I feel like I do... I mean, I, pro- I know I have forgotten some things, but a lot of of the interactions we had, which, you know, s- were significant, are burnt into my memory. So I do feel like with those ones, uh, I remember, well, um, pretty well for me in that relationship. But, yeah, in my family, it's more interpretation of events. Uh, we might remember the same thing, but we'll interpret it entirely differently, Uh And that's where the the conflict... And you can't really do much about that, Mm. really. Mm. I have moved in my thinking. It has taught me, you know, things that seemed... that no one's right about these things, and it's no good... You know, you have to find a way not to try and be right about these things. And I've shifted and seen things from a different point of view. It's been really good, and I've tried to convey that. You know, I hope that you do shift.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I'm so deaf, I didn't hear the question was... (laughs) <laughs> so, roughly, what, what was she asking?
0: Oh, um, basically just, the, I guess, the, the fallibility of memory and did you have situations in which you doubted your own memory and perhaps yeah, especially I, when I have one it bif- conflicted with other people's memory? Memory
1: is terribly, terribly, terribly elastic and fragile mm. and, and we can reinforce... The prisons are full of things, full of people who never committed crimes now. <laughs> you, if you tell yourself over and over again, I did not strangle that child or did not... You, your brain goes, well, have it your way. I remember vividly when Nelson Mandela came to New Zealand, he, he wanted to thank the New Zealand press for the role we played, and I we remember on, on The Listener, there were great writers like Tony Reid and Geoff Chappell and Phil Gifford and Gordon Campbell, and The Listener was virtually an anti-apartheid magazine, you know, and I was really proud of them and The Listener, and I was out there being a reporter, trying to write about apartheid w- while being strongly opposed to it. When Nelson Mandela came to New Zealand, he wanted to speak at the press galleries. 100th birthday. Jim Bulger was furious because he wanted to, but Nelson Mandela wanted to thank the New Zealand press. And I have a vivid memory of Rosie being in the choir that sang, what's that, Nicolazi, book? I'm dyslexia What's your beautiful South African national anthem? And he went up and thanked every, every singer. And I have this memory of Rosie crying in the front row while Nelson Mandela thanked her. And I said to Rosie, Remember that Nelson Mandela thank you? She said, Dad, I wasn't in that choir. <laughs> And I go, Jesus, how much of what, uh, <laughs> how much of everything else have, have I um, invented? Uh,
0: well, it was and, a great piece um, of fiction anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good
1: story. So yeah. I, I don't, I don't you, no one knows how much, uh, I, the Scott family is oral, we, we had no, there's no records, there's hardly any photographs and there's certainly no records. My birth certificate's gone because all my kids and relatives wanted um, a British birth certificate so they usually i don 't have a birth certificate now it 's been, been farmed out so many times it 's gone I hope i don 't ever need it again anyway but <laughs> so there's no, there's no ma- I was staggered at, at the amount of manuscripts and stuff that you managed mm. to unearth nothing on the outside of the family so but we are all verbal so there 's a great oral tradition and and, and so my falsehoods have <coughs> probably been from what i 've heard rather than misreading
3: mm-hmm.
0: fascinating. Um, Look, there's so much more that we that I could talk about and that we could ask, but we have unfortunately run out of time. Um, so both um, Tom and Diana will be around for book signings afterwards. But if you would just like to join me in thanking them for thank an amazing kitchen. thank you.
3: Session. Thank you. Thank you.